Hello, and welcome to this episode of Building Sustainably with Tim O'Brien Homes. I'm your host, Tim O'Brien, and today I'm going to do a solo podcast, and we're going to kind of talk about the concept of total quality management, uh, TQM, and how we apply that in uh, the building industry, in the home building industry. And I'm kind of giving you, a, a, to start, an introduction of kind of just an overview concept of uh, the total quality management application, give you a little bit of the history of how this all started back in the, all the way back to the early 1900s, and, and then kind of take you through a journey of how we've applied this concept of TQM and total quality management in our operation. So first, the, some of the three main concepts, the th- three main concepts of total quality management center around this concept of, of people, process, and systems. And those are the three kind of key attributes, the three corners of a triangle, if you will. They picture a triangle. In each corner of the triangle, you're going to find these key concepts, people, process, and systems. And in the center of that triangle is the customer, of course, right? Um, but also suppliers, because what we need to understand is in order for us to really deliver the product that our end user, our customer is going to use, it's important to understand this relationship between people, process, and systems that make up not only our customer, but our internal customers, those that are involved in producing or ma- making the product, and the suppliers that are involved that provide inputs into um, our process, into this, this, this manufacturing concept that total quality management is kind of based around. So if you picture that triangle with people, systems, and processes on each end of the triangle, in each corner of the triangle, and again, that customer supplier in the center of the triangle. You draw a circle around the outside of all of that, and there's other three key attributes that we need to pay focus and pay attention to, and that is communication, culture, and commitment. Those are other three key attributes that are kind of surround this, this diagram of, of total quality management, this triangle, this image that I just tried to uh, picture or place a picture for you. And that culture, communication, and commitment is so important. So we're going to dive into these key concepts. Um, but before we do that, I'd like to kind of give you a little bit of a background of the history of total quality management. And that starts with um, two gentlemen, uh, two of the most important people who really kind of shaped this, this quality movement. And the first individual, his name is Walter Schuert. Um, and he was a, an American physicist. He was an engineer and a statistician. Um, he was born in the, in the late 1800s and, and, and passed around uh, just before the 1970s. And he was sometimes known as the father of statistical quality control. So he really kind of took a concept of reducing variation, understanding that variation exists in in almost any process and you're and it's very hard to eliminate variation but you work really to mitigate it and control it and that was the key concept that he came up and he put it into the statistical quality control statistical process control and so he was he influenced this next person that I want to spend some more time on and introduce you to and his name was Dr. Edwards Deming and Dr. Deming uh born in 1900 uh, died in 1993 Schuert influenced Deming to take this concept of statistical process control and apply it to manufacturing. And so both he and Dr. Deming uh, together were really considered the founding fathers of the quality movement in the first half of the 20th century. 
And Deming uh, as was a, a unique character. He was a real no-nonsense engineer um, who really had little patience for people who dismissed his ideas and his concepts of how we can be better uh, in, in the U.S. and North America by really focusing on a quality management process, a system of really doing quality uh, tasks at each one of these uh, particular events of where we add value to a product, where we're manufacturing a product. Um, and, and because of this no-nonsense kind of personality he had, he lacked this natural charisma that many innovators bring to their mission, uh, often delivering you know his message in kind of a blunt language and making it a uh, little effort to really charm or impress or win over his audiences. Um, he was so committed to this concept uh, and and it was very difficult for him when when he approached um, those in the U.S. about this opportunity to build better quality products that he uh, did not have the answers or at least the answers that they felt they needed to hear. So in the early 1900s, um, you know, Henry Ford developed this first working model of an assembly line in the Highland Park uh, assembly plant in Michigan. And that really began the age of mass production that kind of no longer were really individuals, you know, building a majority of the product from beginning to end kind of this in home building. It was this master builder concept where somebody would take it all the way from, uh, you know, the excavation and, and building a foundation all the way up through, you know, the final mechanicals and the finishes inside the home. And that as that kind of moved away, the U.S. adopted more of this mass production. And uh, with that, um, they were able to scale up much more greatly and they were able to dominate most of the world markets with manufactured product. So in the 1920s, 1940s, North America manufactured 50% of all products entering the global market. Um, these were from radios, televisions, appliances, uh, a, a tremendous amount of durable goods manufactured at that time were being transport uh, transported to all around the world. Um, U.S. you know was seen as kind of this superior leading power, leading global manufacturing uh, behemoth. Um, and the tone at that time was you know Europe, uh, specifically Japan, who who had uh, concepts of manufacturing products, but. The tone was at that time, say, Japan produced shoddy products, and there was this, well, for lack of a better term, arrogance um, that Japan would never be able to compete with the U.S. The U.S. was just so much more dominant in manufacturing through the use of the assembly lines and the concepts that they brought in at that time. And um, then we kind of then we get into this uh, as we transition through the first half of the nineteen hundred or the twentieth century. We get into World War II. And um, the U.S. and North America were, were one of the few world economies producing at capacity. Um, we were, we, you know, from an infrastructure point of view, we were not impacted by the war as much as Europe was. And so we had this booming, booming manufacturing economy where we were producing massive scale of product, uh, you know, whether it's appliances, whether it's TVs, radios, you know, these are all manufactured on a massive scale using the assembly line concept. And each person had their own individual assigned task, whether that was installing the hinges for a refrigerator door, 
or installing uh, the transist- transistor in a radio or television. It was, it was very specific and it left, the concept was it was to leave little chance for error, or, or at least that was the idea behind minimizing the individual tasks. Have a person be very specific about the, what they do and just rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, and uh, very, leaving out any real level of creativity or problem solving, just make it very simple, as simple as you could. And then they thought, all you have to do is just speed it up and you're going to become, quote unquote, more efficient. Well, in the 1940s, <clears throat> Deming takes this concept of statistical process control and applies it to manufacturing. And the whole concept is build quality into the process rather than inspecting in the end. And at that time, there was a, a huge focus on inspection at the end. So whenever a refrigerator would come off the assembly line, there's someone there to inspect it, to open and close the door a number of times, to make sure the lights are working, to check refrigerant, whatever. There was this huge um, reliance on inspection. And that can get really costly um, you know, under this system when you when you're inspecting products for defects only after they were made, uh, you know, either that product uh, goes to waste or there's a tremendous amount of rework that needs to be done when you wait till the very end to, to truly inspect it. And, you know, Demian was pr- particularly criticized that the dominant method of quality control, it, it, again, inspections that were used by the manufacturers. Um, he maintained that it was better to design a process, a manufacturing process, to ensure that the quality products were created from the start, right there while it's being built. And the method of quality control used by the manufacturers allowed for this inspection for defects only after they're made. Then you're dealing with the fact that it's going to be very costly for you to uh, fix it, or again, it just becomes scrap and and waste. Um, and at that time, the manufacturers never even looked at that, never even considered that really waste. It was just part of the business. It's just how you do business. And so Deming believed that making, you know, great quality items uh, at the outset, when you're there with the item, what would save more money, would win over more customers. And he was able to back this idea up with statistical data. The challenge, though, for Deming was that U.S. manufacturing leadership was so complacent with their success at that time. And um, the, the profitability of these organizations was phenomenal. And, and they were producing so much product. They rejected this notion of paying attention to what the customers want and that the customers would pay more for a quality product. They felt as long as they keep producing this product over and over again, that people would continue to buy and people would accept the fact that, you know, maybe every couple of years you have to replace one of these items. And that also bode well for them as a manufacturer, because of course they get to make it again. They really kind of rejected, you know, as I mentioned before, Deming was very blunt. Um, They rejected his concepts. And one of the things that Deming had, and he had a lot of great quotes, and I'll share a couple of of them with you as we go through this podcast today. But one of the ones that he really had that um, I like and I carry with me is that quality is a leadership failure, not worker ineptness. And and what he means by that is you can't blame the worker for building a, a, a shoddy product. There, there are times where training, process improvement, uh, the quality of the process, how you're instructing people to do things 
is more important than just the individual that's actually putting it together. People can only do so much with the tools and resources they have available to them. And at that time, manufacturers just believe that you just have to work harder and you'll build a better product. So as we continue through this history of, of total quality management, you know, post-World War II, Japan and, and all of Europe is in this major crisis. Um, their country and their, their economies were all decimated by all of the bombing and all the disruption that happened coming out of World War II. And so Japan looked at this as uh, kind of a, a, for lack of a better term, a clean slate for them, uh, an opportunity to build brand new plants, uh, an opportunity for significant manufacturing change within their economy. And they, at this point, were open to anybody that was, that was willing to help. So now enter Dr. Edward Deming. We weren't in the United States. No manufacturers were interested in his concepts. They felt everything was working fine for them. Why not? Why change something that isn't broken was their mindset. So Deming goes over to uh, Japan and helps them get their quality, their first quality movement underway. And in the 1940s up into the 1950s, Japan's manufacturing started to become more of a powerhouse. They there, there became this kind of economic miracle of how quick they were able to recover post, post-World War II uh, from, a, from a gross domestic product production point of view. And so enter now some of the first products that um, we in the United States had not seen, the first transistor radio, this or not transistor radio, pocket radio, Sony's pocket radio, which was kind of the impetus that moved into, you know, the things that we all might remember, the Walkman, the Discman, and so on and so forth, those personal uh, electronics that we all had. But that was the first pocket radio um, that was ever produced in the, in the late 1950s. And then in 1966 came the first Toyota Corolla. And these products became staples throughout the world and began gaining attention of other global manufacturers. And most specifically, uh, now enters back into this, uh, this conversation, the Ford Motor Company. You know, and early on, we talked that they were, that's kind of where the assembly line uh, started. Um, but in the late 1970s, Ford was kind of on its heels and was decided that, you know, looking at what Jap- Japan was doing, you know, the, the, the success of the Toyota Corolla, they were one of the first U.S. manufacturers to engage Dr. Deming in the quality movement. And in 1981, Ford came out with their new mantra, uh, for U.S. manufacturing was quality is job one. So that quality is job one. That was the 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 mantra that they they embedded throughout their organization. And uh, in a short period of time, um, they moved back to profitability and surpassed GM. Uh, GM had been a, such a powerhouse since, since the 1920s. They were they became bigger than Ford and continue to stay in that position all the way up till 1986 when Ford pulled ahead of them using uh, this quality movement within their organization. And um, just kind of going back, staying with the car theme, uh, there was a study done in uh, the late 1990s, I think it was late 1990s, early 2000, where um, professionals, quality professionals compared the concept of the, um, compared the Lexus equivalent to uh, Mercedes-Benz equivalent. And what they found was both cars sold uh, at the roughly the same price, they were they were competing products in, in in the consumer world here, and what they found was Japan was able to produce that product at roughly ten to fifteen thousand dollars less than what Mercedes 
was able to produce it, but yet sell it at the same uh, price on the market and and be a choice that people you know looked at relatively close choice to to make. Um, but Lexus was able to build that quality into the process again, a Toyota product able to build the quality into the process. They were able to benefit from not having to do rework, not having to say, toss items out at the end of the assembly line once the product is all produced, where Mercedes relied tremendously on inspections. Uh, they were more of an inspection-based manufacturer in, in their assembly line, uh, where Toyota and Lexus really focused on building quality into the process, reducing that variability, creating a higher level of predictability, and in turn, were able to produce a car, a better quality car at a lower cost and be able to sell at the same price than a competitor. When we look at total quality management in general, the philosophy is we're, we're aiming at achieving a long-term success. This isn't, this is really a commitment for the long-term, um, not something that just happens overnight, not something that happens very quickly. It's a, it's a leadership commitment that has to permeate throughout the entire organization with a strong focus on that customer satisfaction. And when I talk about customers, and I'm going to talk about this a little later too, we're going to talk about two types of customers. There's the internal customer inside of an operation, which receives a product and has to improve it. And then of course, as we all know, the external customer and user, who's the one that actually utilizes the product. But this whole process requires participation of everyone in the operation and the organization to improve Again, those three quadrant, those three sections on the triangle, the processes, products, and services, you have to have that commitment. And you're really controlling a process versus controlling the result versus using an inspection-based uh, application here. You're really focused on the process. And by focusing on the process, you can reduce that variability that comes from that output, and you can improve reliability and consistency of the process, a greater level of predictability, not only for the manufacturer of the product, but also the individuals putting the product together. And it begins when everyone commits to never sending imperfect information or an imperfect product to the next process. And this is, you know, whether it's conscious or unconscious of somebody who sends that product on, really having a great level of understanding of what their role is in the organization and the importance of them uh, that they never pass on an inferior product to the next step. And that is so key when we look at this, uh, this, the flow of a product from raw materials to fabrication to, to the final product for the consumer is that everybody in that step has to be committed to never pass anything on that isn't ready for the next step. One of the great things that I love about Edwards Deming is the, one of the things that he said is 85% of the reasons for failure uh, in manufacturing or any type of service or product uh, are deficiencies in the systems and the process rather than the employee. He really, because during this time prior to World War II, uh, the concept, and even sometimes today, the concept is, is, you know, it's the worker who is creating the problem with the quality of the product. And he really just flipped that around and said, no, it's, it's a process issue. It's not the employee. And it's the role of management is to change that process rather than badgering individuals to do better. Um, one of the other great quotes that I, I love uh, from Dr. Deming is, 
if you can't describe what you're doing as a process, you don't know what you're doing. Uh, again, talking about making sure that the the person who is involved in producing the product, producing a service, adding value to it, if they can't describe what they're doing as a process, how do they truly know what they're doing? And again, this gets back to the importance of leadership uh, in the role of, of, of really pushing a quality management initiative into the organization. So that's a history. That's a little bit of the concept. What I want to share with you now is just some tools um, that we use in our operation. We use a number of different tools. I'm going to just share um, one or two of them with you today. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is this in, uh, concept of this internal customer. You heard me talk about that before. And remember in the triangle early in the beginning of this, I told you in the middle of that triangle is customers and suppliers. And it's so key and important to recognize that as a nucleus to this. And it really starts in the operation before the product ever gets to the true end user, the true external customer, which we all know who that is. Um, but it's that internal customer, those people that are working in the, in the process or in the operation that we really, as an organization, need to understand they too are a customer of a process. And this includes our trades and our suppliers as well. So when we look at this concept of the internal customer supplier relationship, um, it, you know, we know who our external customer is. We know who our end user is. We know it's important to, to have to deliver a quality product and a quality experience to, to, to have that end result be you know, a satisfied customer. But it's important, and leadership has to do this, it's important that every single person in the organization who has an effect on these external customers, we, it's, it's important that everybody understands their role. And, and it's not just our customer-facing team, uh, but it's everybody in the organization has an effect on delivering that quality product, service, whatever it might be to that external customer and understanding these relationships inside of your operation are essential. If our external customers are truly to be satisfied. So when we look at this, the main concept, these are the big pieces of it, of this internal customer supply relationship is that each person in a process is a customer of a previous operation. So Team members, uh, people, your employees, your teammates, an operation, everybody has a customer role and everybody has a supplier role. So again, each person in a process is a customer of a previous operation or a previous uh, piece that was then passed on to them. And in each person delivering a product or a service to another is within that operation is the supplier. So at each, at any time in your day, you may be playing either uh, in a customer role as you're waiting to receive uh, an input from someone for you to be able to add value to it and create an output and pass it on to the next customer. You, you toggle back and forth between this being a customer and being a supplier. And it's important to understand your role and who your customer is, as well as be able to give feedback to those that are providing you a product. And when we look at this, all these systems and processes are resilient, consistent, and function easily and effectively. That is the goal. Once you understand how, what each person needs from you and what they do with the product that you provide them, the value they add to it, to move it on to the next stage in the process. Once you understand that, you can really get a better feel for how you impact their ability to do their job and what they need from you. And the other most important piece of this 
the processes that you develop really have to be followed by all. That's the commitment piece. Remember before when I talked about the triangle, you had commitment, you had communication, and you had culture. And those three key items, commitment, communication, and culture, all are important for an operation to get everybody on board, to be committed to the process, uh, to communicate amongst one another of what each other needs, and to follow that process. So as we move through this, it, it, you know, the organizational mindset, if you will, is you just, you, you never pass on a defective part uh, or an inaccurate piece of information to the next part of the process. That's a commitment. Uh, each person, supplier, has a goal to ensure quality meets the needs and expectations of that next person in line, that next customer internal to their operation. And when you, when you successfully get there, um, the results from this are, are less rework, less work stoppage, less frustration uh, for your team. And, and the higher internal and external customer satisfaction, people in the organization are less frustrated by having to do rework or wait on a missing part or piece or wait on a, a piece of information that did not come through to them. And they can't do anything with, you know, in their role of what they're supposed to do to add value to that service, to add value to that product until they get that information. When you have this mindset that you never pass on this defective part, you're going to have a greater level of satisfaction in your operation. And of course, in the end, the product that gets to our external customers is indeed the product that they believed they were buying. Um, so let me just kind of lay out an example for you. So a customer comes in and buys a home for us. We, um, we, we draft up a, a building agreement and we redline a base plan. So we, we take a look. They, they have certain options, features that they want in the home. We make note of that. We create an, an option list of things that they're adding to the, the base level specifications to that base plan. And we generate this initial vision of, of what their home is going to look like. And so that is all bundled together and, and brought into our office and essentially presented to our pre-construction team. And so our pre-construction team is the customer of that bundle of information. Our new home sales professionals uh, become a supplier. They bring the, the build agreement, the plan red lines, the options, selections, all that stuff into the office. They need to make sure that um, they've done everything following the process, following what our pre-construction team has said. These are the things that I need in order for me to do my job effectively. And that pre-construction team then takes those base redline plans. They take those options and they generate uh, what we call a lot-specific plan or develop the customer-specific plan using that information that was provided to them. So now they're adding value to what the new home sales professional brought in, and they're creating a, another a sense of a product in our operation, which is developing the plans, uh, itemizing those options, and making sure that everything in the plan and in the options match with the agreement, and of course, match with the expectation of what our customers have. The next step then is it goes to our purchasing team who has to procure the labor and the materials to build the home. So now, the pre-construction team, which was once a customer of the sales team, now becomes a supplier to our purchasing team. And our purchasing team now wears that hat, that has that role of being the customer. And our purchasing team 
will reach out and say, you know, these are the things that I need in order for me to be able to do my job. And our pre-construction team knows that they don't deliver their product to purchasing until they have all of those items set. And then this, you can kind of see this just continues on. The purchasing team now becomes a supplier for our trade partners and our trade partners become the customer. And I know in a lot of building organizations, trade partners typically aren't considered customers, but in our operation, uh, we do consider them customers. They're customers of the information that we need to provide to them so they can successfully perform their job. So they don't have rework, so they don't have work stoppage, so they don't have frustration trying to figure out what the heck we're asking them to build. And this relationship continues throughout the build process. We've actually incorporated a couple concepts of what we call job ready, job complete. And these are concepts that we have in each one of the milestones of our construction process, where we want to make sure that our trades who are finishing their job, they understand what complete is. Because the next trade partner that needs to come in and pick up where they left off needs to have that job ready, needs to make sure that all of the, they need assurances that all of the pieces and parts are there for them then to pick it up, to add value to it, and to be able to deliver it to the next trade partner in the construction flow process. Again, that next trade partner for them would be essentially their customer. So we really focus on job ready, job complete. And we ask these questions not only uh, to our trades, but also internal to our operation. We ask these questions of our customers and our suppliers but when we talk with our internal customers, what, what do you need from me? What do you do with my output? If I can have a better understanding of how you add value to what I provide to you, I get a better understanding of how I can enhance the value or improve my process of giving you more of what you need or, or making it easier for you to add value to it and move it on to the next part of the process. And then the, the last question, so let me go over that one more time. First question is, what do you need from me? You know, and what do you do with my output? What do you, what value do you add to it? How do you do it? And then are there any gaps between what you need from me and what you get? And that's really very important. Um, we can make someone's life a lot easier if maybe we just take another five or 10 minutes to do a, a, something else in, in our flow that might save them hours later. And if we can do that, we want to build that in because that's part of our quality control process. And that also makes sure that the product that we pass on to our, our supplier, our, our, our next customer, they get exactly what they need to be able to be successful in what they do. So that is the internal customer supplier relationship. We just recently completed, um, we, we want to do this about every six months, uh, an exercise where we bring in representatives of each one of our department teams to sit down and really brainstorm on how we can improve a process, understanding what we do well. Um, and, and, and maybe what are some opportunities for improvement? And these teams meet at least once every six months, unless there's, unless there's a big process change somewhere down the line to get together and look for opportunities to improve it, find out where maybe we might be lacking, uh, in that communication of information or, or adding value to that product onto the next, uh, customer in line and, and really making sure that each department understands the impact that another department has on them. And that's so important for, not only the culture of our operation, uh, but also too to make sure that we deliver a quality product. You know, building a home is a complex product. Uh, it's a very complex process, and uh, it really requires, uh, uh, in my mind, a building company, home building company, to have good quality processes 
and great communication between those department teams. Um, so, so that internal customer supplier relationship is one of the tools that we use very frequently in our operation to make that connection and to find those opportunities for improving process, which ultimately improves the experience and product for our customers. Now, the last tool um, I want to share with you, and just the two simple tools, this, this last one is called the Plan, Do, Check, Act. So Plan, Do, Check, Act. This came out of uh, Deming and Schwartz's uh, concept of statistical process control, and it's it, the abbreviation for it is the PDCA, Plan, Do, Check, Act cycle. And so when we look at this concept, one of the things that you know all businesses do is they develop a plan. Um, whether it's your business plan, a plan to produce a product, a plan is, uh, of, of how to build a certain section of the product. And then they say, now go do. So, you know, they, they send the team out, they send their you know, line employees out, so to speak, just go do it. Here's the plan. We developed the plan, leaders did, and we're going to tell you how to use it and you're going to go do it. The, the challenge, though, sometimes is we, most businesses do this very well. They plan and they do, but they don't go back and check and see how it's working. And so when we look at the check part is you roll out a new process, you have a new plan of how you're going to do something, but you got to go back and check. Is it working? Uh, are those that use this tool, this plan that I placed out there, this process that I laid out, are they, is it working for them? Um, is it, do they train on it? Do they understand how to use it? Do they have the tools they need? And most importantly, in my mind, as part of this is, do they have input into it? Sometimes we just say, here's the plan, go do it. Um, and we, you know, we don't know the intricacies of sometimes the details of how to, how to produce uh, that particular segment uh, in our milestone, in our, in our flow. And we rely on our team to you know, figure it out. Um, the check element of the Plan to Check Act requires us to go back and ask the questions, how is it working? You know, if you've gone through it three to five different cycles at this point, you should have a feeling, does it work or does it not work? And so we want to bring in those that use that, that process and we want to ask them these questions, have them be involved in coming up with better ways to do it. And then we want to study those results. And then the next part of the after check is act. So now we know what may not have worked or how to enhance it. And we're going to implement that best solution. So that's the act part. But we're not done. So we're going to go through this whole plan, do, check, act cycle again. We're going to make some changes based on the feedback that we received and the input that 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 person, those individuals who live in that process every day have had. And we're going to develop a new plan. And then we're going to go do it again. We're going to test some potential solutions. We're going to do it again. And then again, circle back and study the results. Now, over time, once you have this really dialed in, the frequency of going back and having these conversations together uh, becomes much longer. You don't you don't need to get together after three or five cycles. You now you feel that you've got control over it. It works very well. It works for um, all the customers in the operation, the suppliers in the operation, and you can come back and study it again, maybe in next six months or or a year, or if something really changes in the process. But the concept is is you just don't roll it out. You just don't leave it out there and expect that everybody knows how it's to be done and. Does it really work? You, you don't know until you run it through a couple cycles and then make a conscious effort on the leadership side to go back out, survey those that are using the process and find out how is it working for them, get them involved in the solution, develop new ideas, modify the process, whatever you need to do, 
roll it back out and check in again. And once things are moving very well and the variability and predictability of that process is where you want it, um, then you don't have to go back to it every, you know, so often. And one of the things that we do in this is, you know, if we're, if we're developing a new process or say a new product or a new service, that's when we really dial in this plan, do check act cycle, because it is brand new. And we need to make sure that people have the training needed. Um, this goes back to Deming's concept of 85% of the problem is a process or systems problem. 15% of it is a people problem, where a lot of times we may fall into this default of, well, no, it's the, it's the person. They're not using it the way it's intended to use it. Well, did they know? Did they really know how to use it? Did we give them the proper training? Did we check back in with them to really see how it's working for them? So anytime that we roll out a new uh, process or a new improvement project in our operation, we follow this plan to check act. Um, so whether we're planning for, you know, collecting data on this, um, we will, we will have some processes that will roll out that have key performance indicators that we can track data on to see how they're going. Then we can analyze that data to try to identify, you know, any, any root cause, uh, problems in the process or prioritize those problems or really work through them. And, and kind of the the check concept here of plan do check act, and then we're going to continue to kind of dial that in until we feel that it's more predictable and it's consistent. And again, the other real important aspect of it is everybody's got to do it the same way. They really got to follow the process. We want them; they're going to have input into it, um, but it only works if everybody does it the way that it was designed. And if something isn't working in that process. There's the feedback loop that comes back to us and we'll modify or change that process. But it really requires everybody to have that commitment, that focus, um, and that mindset of we're going to use this process. I'm not going to pass on a defective part to anybody else. And then I'm going to continue to find ways to improve this process as we go along. And that's when you start to really get the, the, the traction on continuous improvement in your operation. When people really understand that uh, they can be a part of the solution, they get much more excited about bringing improvement opportunities to your operation. So that is kind of our concept of how we've brought total quality management, TQM, into our operation. And we continue to grow and evolve. Um, that's one of the things about TQM. There's there's no destination. It's It's a journey. Um, and it's, it's something that's embedded in your culture. It's something that is just the way of operating. It is, it is what helps your organization get better at what they do by having this mindset of understanding who your customers are in your operation and understanding that they are customers and not just cogs in the wheel, uh, understanding the supplier relationship of, of the person who's passed that product onto you. And your responsibility to make sure that if you're not getting what you need is that you communicate back to them of, of the gaps of what you need versus what you're getting. And then you build that into your process. And when you do that, you have an operation that can deliver a more consistent product to your end users, to your true customers. And you have a lot more satisfaction within your operation, less waste, uh, more efficient, and a greater level of internal customer satisfaction in your operation. So that is what we just wanted to share with you today on total quality management. I hope it was a learning opportunity for you or it opened up some, maybe some uh, thoughts in your mind that will help you move forward and maybe taking on some of these initiatives. 
you can Google uh, TQM and you'll find plenty of things uh, to that'll help you get to where you want to be. Um, but again, Dr. Deming, he's been kind of my main uh, influencer in this and uh, just the concepts that he's been able to bring and the ideas that changed the platform for building quality products in North America and the United States. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We really appreciate it. We hope you have a wonderful day and we hope that this inspires you to take some action in your own life to build a better product or service for you and your organization. Thanks much and have a great day.